Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Jenna Ellis, and welcome to Just the Truth podcast, sponsored by the Thomas More Society, which is a not-for-profit national public interest law firm dedicated to restoring respect in law for life, family, and religious liberty. You can find them at thomasmoresociety.org. We have focused on religious freedom a lot on this program because as our society becomes more secular and more post-truth, we as conservatives must understand why free exercise is so essential as a fundamental liberty. We've talked about how our Bill of Rights simply textually enumerates the rights that are God-given to every human being who has ever lived, from conception to natural death. Our Constitution does not give us our freedoms, but it requires our government to preserve and protect them. Some societies have protected individual rights and fundamental freedoms better than other societies, and some government systems are better designed to protect freedom than others. In a 2021 landscape, we have to not only understand where our rights come from, how our system of government is designed to protect them, but also how we need to think biblically and legally to ensure that our rights are protected for the future. Joining me now for the whole hour to discuss are two very dear friends of mine, Charles LaMondry and Paul Jana, special counsel from the Thomas More Society, where we jointly work on constitutional law and religious liberty cases. The Thomas More Society is a not-for-profit national public interest law firm dedicated to restoring respect in law for life, family, and religious freedom. You can find the work that we do on thomasmoresociety.com. And gentlemen, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Uh, Welcome. And so Chuck and Paul, I'm so excited for both of you to be here. And uh, very briefly, I think for a lot of people, seeing how uh, this whole concept of religious liberty has become so scrutinized in 2020, this isn't the first thing, though, in the first draft, I guess, that, that we've ever done uh, in, in the history, in our nation's history, to protect and preserve religious liberty. So, Chuck, turning to you first, um, why is this so important for us to understand where we've come from and where we're going? Why religious liberty is so essential to liberty? Well, we have to remember that our nation was basically founded, Jen, as you know, by religious refugees. You know, people came here so they could have the freedom to practice a religion according to their conscience. They entered into the Mayflower uh, con- Compact. Uh, when they first came to this country, they sacrificed and risked everything. Half of them died the, the first winter, uh, all primarily for religious liberty. And that's been part of our nation's history from its very beginning. And uh, throughout our history, we've enjoyed uh, religious liberty. We've had you know, our struggles. Sometimes one faith seemed to be more dominant in certain areas than others. But uh, basically, we've learned as a people and grown together and found strength in our religious diversity. That's always been one of our strongest suits. But uh, because we had uh, predominantly shared a common value system uh, rooted in biblical uh, values, we call it you know, the Judeo-Christian uh, worldview, uh, we were more of a united people for much of our history. 
that has changed somewhat in the last uh, few decades, unfortunately. And I say it's unfortunately because I think most people realize, particularly those of us who are, you know, over 50 years old and have seen uh, the changes, that uh, we don't appear to be uh, as unified as a country as we once were. And uh, most people feel that that has not been a good thing. There seems to be a lot more rancor. Uh, the public debate is not as civil as it used to be. Uh, and uh, people basically feel a sense of uneasiness, particularly when uh, they feel they're being targeted for the religious views. Now, we know from the polls I read, you know, just recently, we went from having uh, basically 85% uh, of the people were, were Christians, I think, after World War II, and, and then even as much as uh, 15, 20 years ago, it was 75%. Uh, when I started doing this, this work, I think it was 75% of the, the country was, was Christian. But uh, unbelievably, particularly in the last um, 10, 15 years, that's dropped off considerably. And now we're close to about half the people in the country uh, don't consider themselves religiously uh, affiliated. Now, that means that we're not um, basically unified in a common uh, viewpoint uh, that has been, again, rooted in Judeo-Christian values. The Ten Commandments, for example, basis for uh, much of our laws. And uh, I think that's weakened us. But uh, more important, uh, it's made many of us feel like we're being marginalized, uh, left on the sidelines, and that things that we took for granted for most of our nation's history and most of our lifetimes, you know, I'm, I'm 65 years old, uh, we're, we're seeing being called into question regarding our ability to practice our, our faith without uh, restraint or views that were commonly held as accepted and normal. Uh, such as marriages between uh, one man and, and one woman are now being labeled as a form of bigotry and, and people are being deprived of their uh, rights uh, to be able to you know, hold a job in, in many places or uh, practice their uh, vocation or their business uh, unless they adopt uh, some type of um, mainline uh, thinking with the new orthodoxy. So this is a real problem, particularly if, if people have deeply held religious beliefs they feel they have to violate their consciences in order to, to, to keep a job or without being ostracized. So I think that kind of, uh, in a nutshell, uh, sums up where we've uh, come from and where we are now and why the fight for religious liberty is so very important. It is, and I think that was an excellent summary. And what a lot of people don't recognize uh, who are more of the post-truth or secular mentality is that they don't understand that actually even the, the freedom and liberty to speak together about truth and to discover truth and decide for yourselves, who do you say that God is? That is essential as a foundational threshold. And what our founders believed and understood was that the only way that government doesn't intrude upon our rights as human beings made in the image of God is recognizing that truth and saying that we have the inherent right as human beings to pursue faith, to understand uh, what what we recognize as truth, and to empirically search after the truth rather than the government arbitrarily coercing us either to participate in or restrain from participating in religious acti activities or even just truth-based activities. I think religion as a whole concept has gotten so marginalized with in that definition. So uh, we're going to talk more about this for the whole hour. I'm really excited for both Paul and Chuck to join me for this hour. So we'll be right back with more of Just the Truth. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. 
Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to Just the Truth, where I'm talking with my co-counsel from the Thomas More Society, Chuck LaMondry and Paul Jana. And uh, Paul, before the break, we were talking about just some of the history of uh, where this concept of religious liberties come from and why America is founded on the recognition of truth, that our rights come from God, our creator, not given to us by our government. And that's something that even uh, people who may be watching this who aren't religious at all and who are saying, well, it's 2021, why do we still have religious liberty as a thing? What about separation of church and state? Uh, from a philosophical perspective, uh, why is this so important for people to understand that religious liberty is actually essential to every other freedom? Yes, it, as Chuck was saying, Jenna, it's, it's really foundational. I mean, it's really uh, a core value that our, that our founders tried to embody in, in the Constitution and, and the way we live as Americans. I, I think that um, you know, the concept of liberty really is, as, as uh, one famous judge said, something that lies in the hearts of men and women. So I think what we're seeing a lot today is that the, the concept of liberty seems to be lost, at, at least by the radical left, it seems, um, that, that seems so eager to uh, impose their will on others. And so I think that's a lot of what we're seeing in 2021, the response to the to the pandemic, which I'm sure we'll talk about, seems to be, um, you know, largely driven by people who don't really have that, that love for liberty that really our founders uh, cherish so much. So uh, there's a lot to say about the topic, but I think that, um, you know, especially given the response that we've seen to, to, to COVID in 2020 and, and currently, um, you know, there's obviously, as Chuck was saying, um, you know, a large segment of the, of the population no longer shares those those core values. Yeah, and uh, you know, there was even a an article that I just uh, tweeted out right before the program from my friend uh, Charles Cook at National Review that was uh, basically saying we've never seen a more apathetic uh, people that have not wanted to take back our liberties and freedoms under the auspices of fear. And so, I mean, this is a freedom issue when we're talking about specifically COVID. But uh, but Chuck, you know, this whole idea of just freedom in general to pursue liberty, to pursue truth, to pursue an understanding of who we are as human beings, where we came from, where we're going. All of that is essential when we're talking about the right to freedom of speech, freedom of association, uh, free exercise of religion. It's the ability to speak together about truth and not be coerced one way or the other into what to believe. And it's shocking to me that people today uh, Chuck, don't seem to have that type of earnestness to say, I need to discover for myself rather than just, you know, hey, let me, Siri, tell me what freedom means in 2020. That almost seems like that's where we're going. Yeah, I agree. And it's sad. I think obviously technology has a lot of wonderful benefits. Uh, you have the world at your fingertips, you know, the uh, wisdom of the ages on the internet, but also it has, I think, to a certain extent, uh, cause people not to be as literate, not to read the great books, not to learn uh, how the great thinkers uh, thought about a lot of these uh, issues. 
And uh, I don't think people necessarily think as linearly and, and rationally. There's a lot of uh, quick soundbite information. And for all of those reasons, I think people have lost uh, a sense of, as you were saying, what's foundational, the reason why the freedom of religion is the first freedom in, in the Bill of Rights, but how it uh, very much dovetails with freedom of speech and, and freedom of association and freedom of assembly. Uh, this is what has distinguished us as Americans and made the American experience so unique and why people have always uh, flocked to uh, America uh, as the place that would be uh, a great hope and a great opportunity uh, for them and their families. Uh, that has uh, lost a lot of that. And part of it, I think, is because of the secular education and almost a, yes. a purposeful uh, intention to have students not learn about the great history of our nation, about the uh, motivating factors about who the founders were and uh, the sacrifices that they made and uh, has basically uh, painted American history uh, a much darker light uh, than it deserves to be painted and, and made the American experience something that has become uh, less attractive to our own citizens, uh, younger citizens who are nonetheless uh, enjoying the benefits of it, but not realizing how fragile it can be as we've seen over the past year how people's rights have been taken away and, and not enough people have been willing to fight for them. Yeah. And um, if we don't fight for them, we can easily lose them within a generation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we can lose them within, you know, 30 days as we, as we saw, uh, you know, last year and how uh, now we have this kind of split and this divide among uh, the governors, but then also even among the people. I was talking to a colleague uh, here at Real America's Voice earlier saying it reminds me of the Dr. Seuss book, The Sneetches, you know, those who have stars upon theirs, those who are vaccinated versus those who aren't, those who right. are masks versus not. And we have this kind of hierarchy of elitism rather than understanding uh, that if we have this threshold of freedom and saying that every individual gets to decide for themselves and for their families what is in their best interest and actually exercise, act upon that freedom. And Paul, I think one of the, the main uh, things also that the secular society uh, and, and that wing of people who say, well, this is all about pushing your religion on us and you guys need to relegate that into your churches, if that. I mean, they're still, they're wanting to close the doors of the churches. But what they don't understand is that to have a well-ordered society then rights have to come from somewhere. You have to have a philosophy and a foundation and a comprehensive worldview on where do our rights come from. And if not God, then who decides? And so that seems to me, um, just take for example what's happening in California, where both of you are, and uh, where you know a couple of our, of our cases are located at um, as well for, for the Thomas More Society. Um, it seems like the premise of people like Governor Newsom is just, well, because our rights don't come from God, now we, the government, get to determine what your rights are, when, how, where, and why you get to exercise them. Right. And, you know, Justice Alito, when he uh, gave a, a speech last year, he, he referred to this period in history as a constitutional stress test. And that's really what we've seen. I mean, we're seeing um, in the case of Governor Newsom and other governors, um, you know, they're, they're just, uh, you know, making laws by executive fiat instead of through the legislative process. And so we have this in California, like in many other states, there's this perpetual state of emergency that just gives the governor almost unlimited control over all facets of the government. And so it's really just like a medical dictatorship and tyranny that, you know, we're seeing in lots of states, including California. It's really just 
completely, uh, you know, the opposite of what you'd expect in a, in a democracy. I mean, so uh, at some point, the emergency has to end. And, you know, we're used to seeing short-term emergencies for, for natural disasters. But literally, as we speak right now in California, even though the, the death rates and the hospitalizations and all the numbers are looking really good, the vaccination rates, everything everything you can basically can, you know think of, but there's still a state of emergency that gives the governor um, an enormous amount of power in California. So and I think that's the same thing in many other states. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's being challenged in some cases, including some cases that we have. But uh, that's the fundamental problem, which is, uh, like you said, the governor basically thinks he's the king. Right. And, uh, so. Right, right. And that's where if if our governors and our leaders don't understand the philosophy and the truth that is at the foundation of the worldview behind America, behind our great society, then they can harness that power and they can manipulate it and they misunderstand it. And they also misunderstand their oath of office. And we as citizens have to before uh, wouldn't it have been great before the pandemic if we all understood what civil liberties meant, what freedom meant in the context of the Bill of Rights, in the context of our Constitution and our Declaration as the foundation, because then we would be able to, as an entire citizenry, as we the people who self-govern, we would then push back stronger and say, well, sorry, Gavin Newsom, sorry, Gretchen Whitmer, sorry, uh, you know, Governor Wolf up in Pennsylvania. No, this isn't part of what you're obligated to do. And we've seen that some people, uh, Chuck, have that understanding and that awareness, but I think that there is a lack of genuine civic education and the pandemic has really just crystallized and elucidated that uh, for a lot of Americans. True, and there's even something uh, more fundamental that we could talk uh, on a more concrete basis about some of the cases, what we're actually doing on, on the ground. And uh, ph philosophically, what I'm referring to is uh, without a concept of, of God, a divine being, our creator, the founders sometimes called it divine pro providence, uh, you know, the guiding hand of God, uh, there is not a common understanding of, of things such as the most fundamental truth, uh, goodness, and, and, and beauty. Uh, and there's almost uh, a lack of appreciation for the individual you know, dignity of the person, which has been fundamental to Christianity, but not other philosophies and not other forms of, of government. So, uh, you have an anti-life uh, mentality when it comes to things like abortion and euthanasia if you no longer have Judeo-Christian uh, principles uh, permeating society. Those who are most vulnerable and weak are, are no longer being protected by the government in ways that they would have in the past. If you don't have, again, the Judeo-Christian view of marriage as founded in the Bible and the book of, of Genesis and throughout the Old and New Testament, uh, then you're going to start attacking the most basic unit of society through which children have been uh, most fundamentally uh, educated by the parents in terms of society's values since the formation you know, of the nation over 200 years ago. The family is, is fracturing uh, like never before uh, in our nation's history. And uh, without a focus on our God-given rights and the fact that we're children of God and brothers and sisters as children of God, again, you have more dis discord and disharmony, uh, divisiveness, and again, our civic debate becomes uh, something uh, much more uh, in the way what we saw in the summer with the riots. I mean, that's not something uh, that we've come to ex expect at the level that we've seen it uh, over the uh, the time of the pandemic. And, and finally, and I do you know believe that it, there is this, this concept that our intellect is darkened. We don't allow you know the light of God to kind of uh, shine through. 
in trying to embrace his truth, which he will give us if we just yes. uh, seek it out. But if and people don't even acknowledge his existence, it's not there for us. So it's almost uh, a, a nihilism, uh, a chaos and anarchy. Yes. Uh, we saw that, I think, with a lot of the, the writing. I think we did. Absolutely. And it goes back to Romans 1 and saying, you know, God will turn us over to our depravity if we are not following him and seeking truth. And we need a government that is uh, willing and able to preserve and protect our ability to seek truth. So we'll be right back to talk more about the truth. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome back to Just the Truth, and we're continuing the conversation with my Thomas More Society co-counsel, Chuck LaMondry and Paul Jana. And I hope as you're watching this show and as you continue uh, to watch all the deep dive conversations that we have on this program, you're starting to see the comprehensive nature of why every single topic isn't isolated. It's not like we're talking about pro-life in a bubble. We're not talking about religious liberty in a bubble. And then we're talking about politics and immigration and other issues um, all in very separate and completely discordant uh, types of arenas. We have to understand the foundation of everything. And that's what our founders unanimously recognized when they said that our rights come from God, our creator, not our government. And the sole purpose of government is to preserve and protect those rights we have to start with the foundation of recognizing truth, recognizing that idea that makes us all American, that makes us come together with this recognition of self-evident truth, and then build up our political philosophy, our, uh, our policy that comes from government based on that truth. And so then none of these topics are in conflict with that essential foundation. So uh, Chuck LaMondry and Paul John are joining me for this conversation. And I want to get into now some of the specifics about uh, religious liberty and why this particular freedom is so important to continue to protect in the future, but also why it's been important to protect it through the court system and legally. Um, this isn't just an idea that we need to champion in our churches. Of course, that's essential. We have to be teaching biblical truth in our churches. Uh, but Chuck, it's very important also to make sure that we're making the arguments in court and especially from the Supreme Court having precedent that is good for the future, that preserves and protects this fundamental freedom in the best way possible moving forward. And you have been a part of a case that actually started back in, what, 1989? Exactly, yes. Yeah, We're talking so, about the Mount case in yes. San Diego, which is a large a war memorial located on uh, one of the most scenic uh, places, uh, certainly in San Diego, if not throughout the, the country, overlooking the western part of our county in the Pacific Ocean and uh, downtown San Diego all the way into Mexico and then east all the way to the uh, mountains. Uh, it's just a beautiful spot, and it's been a time-honored um, area where people have been able to uh, come there and uh, and pay tribute to the people that sacrificed so much for these very freedoms uh, we're talking about. It was initially uh, uh, built in its present form by uh, veterans returning from the Korean War in, in 1954, and they wanted to have a memorial to their fallen comrades. There had been two prior crosses there going all the way back, I think, to uh, 1904. 
Uh, but this cross was uh, built by the Mount Soledad Memorial Association in cooperation with the American uh, Legion. And it was basically a, a landmark for a lot of people. We didn't necessarily look at it as a religious symbol, even me as a native San Diego and, and as a Christian, I didn't necessarily you know, see it as, as symbolizing religion per se. I knew it was a, a war memorial and a symbol of, of uh, self-sacrifice, which is why crosses are frequently used on uh, graves for uh, fallen soldiers. Nonetheless, uh, Philip Paulson, who came to San Diego in, in 1989, who was an atheist, said he was offended by it and launched this litigation that lasted some 27 years, only ended 2016. I only got involved in 2004 for the first time when Mount Soledad Memorial Association and the city of San Diego were going to throw in the towel, uh, give up the fight, and basically let the cross be taken down. And so we organized a citizens group and got it on the ballot, and two-thirds of the people of San Diego said they did not want uh, the cross removed. They thought it was, in, in fact, a fitting uh, tribute to our, our fallen uh, heroes. And uh, again, originally it was Korean War, and then uh, it included the World War One and World War II veterans, and then uh, more recently, all the way back to the Civil War, and more recently still, all the way back to the Revolutionary War. So you've got wow. plaques there, over 4,000 honoring soldiers from basically every war in which our nation has fought. And, and, uh, and imagine this, you know, somebody just comes in and they're offended by a yeah. symbol, and then they say just on that basis, somehow that violates the law. I mean, you know, th these are things that are just such absurd claims, and yet this type of litigation continues to go on. And so, um, so in this case, I mean, what was the essential question and how did it end up getting resolved? Sure. The essential question is whether or not you could have a prominent religious symbol on public property and whether or not that somehow violates the establishment clause in the First Amendment of the United States uh, Constitution. And um, the Ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, which is known to be a, a liberal court, oftentimes hostile towards religion, found that it was a violation of the First Amendment, but it went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, they sent it back for reconsideration in light of some new factors. and. Uh, basically, in 2016, the Mount Soledad Memorial Association, which always wanted to own the land so that basically they can uh, be able to uh, regulate how that land is used in terms of uh, having whatever services people are going to have up there without needing government permission and control, they purchased the land from the government. And the uh, ACLU and the atheists fought that. They wanted that cross to be brought mm -hmm. down. But by purchasing and putting it on in private hands, uh, basically, they ended the litigation and took it uh, out from future attacks. On one hand, we would have liked to have gotten the United States Supreme Court to render a final uh, decision on the case. We knew that that was uh, necessary, and that did, in fact, happen even more recently with a uh, Brandenburg uh, cross in uh, Maryland. Yeah, uh, the First to... Liberty case. They're good friends over there. That's... Yeah. And so that was established. We helped lay the groundwork for it, made all the arguments, and uh, we're getting uh, real traction, you know, one in the district court and the Supreme Court uh, basically would not let the cross be removed while it was in uh, litigation, even though the other side fought hard for that. So uh, we reached a settlement that actually worked out best for mm -hmm. the people who built and maintained the cross, and they're very happy with it. As a matter of fact, I had lunch today with the guys currently heading up the association, and they've got big plans to expand it and make it you know, a more wonderful a place for people to visit from across the nation. So. Good, yeah, and you know, and Paul, I, I think for a lot of people who look at this, um, this type of 
argument, you know, when, when we're talking about the Establishment Clause and, you know, this type of argument to say, well, just because a, a cross, which is obviously a traditionally Christian symbol uh, in today's, I mean, it wasn't, of course, back in ancient Roman times, it was a symbol of the most hideous uh, manner of death that you could possibly imagine, but it is, an, uh, it is an overtly Christian symbol. But when we're talking about the Establishment Clause that's kind of been excised out of the First Amendment and then suddenly saying, well, if anything has a, even a pretext of being Christian or being um, overtly religious, then the state can't in any way use that symbol or um, in any way even just have that out in uh in their public lands or anything. And we've kind of gone the the other extreme, I think, of saying that uh, this, this buying into a separation of church and state. So for people who don't really understand the Establishment Clause in its constitutional context, how should they understand it? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I wasn't as involved in the Mount Soledad Cross case. I, actually, that case concluded before I got here. But, um, but what I will say, just to, to your point about about the way these cases get started is that, you know, like as Chuck was saying, someone said they were offended by the cross. And, and you know, we have um, a lot of times we what we see in these cases that the, the pretense for the litigation is just made up. Basically, um, we have an, we have another case representing a devout Christian baker, um, the, the lesbian couple that that um, that wanted the cake from her bakery basically sought her out because she's a devout Christian. They, they were never really in need of a wedding cake. And we have another case um, where we have a devout uh, Catholic who wants to help young sex traffic victims and, um, you know, basically made up a lot of reasons to, to, to single her out and give her a hard time with her licensing process. So I'm not answering your question about the Establishment Clause. I'm just saying uh, to your point about this case and people being easily offended, it seems what we see a lot in this work is uh, is that that's sort of just a pretense to sort of attack people of mm -hmm. faith, and it's a very uh, militant, um, you know, line of work that we're in, where we're basically responding to attacks from people who just want to tear down uh, anything religious that they see. Right. Jenna, so, let me, since I dealt with that issue extensively for, for 12 years, uh, basically the establishment clause was intended to prevent the situation that we had in England when the you know, founders came over; they were English. Uh, where there was a government-sponsored religion, and you had to basically be a member of that church, you're going to be disenfranchised, okay? Yeah. So they did not want the federal government uh, basically promoting and sponsoring any particular church. Interestingly enough, they didn't at the time mind the states having state-sponsored churches, but the federal government wasn't going to do that. Now, we got away from even uh, not having state-sponsored churches for the, the same reason. The flip side of the Establishment Clause, though, is Government, at the very least, has to be neutral and cannot be hostile towards religion. Right. And there's nothing wrong with acknowledging and showing accommodation towards religion. And what we had in the Mount Soledad Cross case was overt hostility on the part of minority of the uh, the population. In fact, I misspoke when I said two-thirds. Uh, the court said we needed two-thirds of the people to vote to be able to transfer the land uh, to the federal government. It was originally on state land. And in the California Constitution is even more restrictive of religious symbols. So we had to transfer to, to uh, federal land. And when they said we needed two-thirds of the people to vote, they said, forget it. You can't get two-thirds of people to vote on anything uh, anymore like this. Uh, even if you were to ask two-thirds of the people to vote on the color of the sky, they wouldn't agree on that. We got 76% of the, the vote. So the people wow. of San Diego made it loud and clear, and the politicians you know, got behind it. They're not stupid. They want to get reelected. So... Uh, the governor and uh, we got 80% of the 
uh, House of Representatives, and then we got a, a unanimous consent calendar on the United States Senate uh, who voted for it. So uh, we were able to mobilize the support yeah. of the people. And, the people, and that's why it's so important. Sin. That is why that's it's right. so important for people to get involved, to understand why exactly. uh, liberty has to be protected. And to Paul's point about saying that, you know, what we're seeing is the overt hostility. I mean, it's it's like the our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom who are defending uh, Jack Phillips against, you know, this next lawsuit where you have someone who came in who just specifically wanted him to design a cake that uh, this individual knew that Jack Phillips didn't want to bake based on... Okay. Uh, his Christian faith. And so we're seeing that. And so we're seeing the two sides of that coin. Um, you know, I think that that was brilliantly laid out by both of you that the Establishment Clause was designed so that the government wouldn't coerce us into being part of a particular uh, faith, a particular uh, subset, a particular sect. But on the flip side, it can't have an overt hostility toward religion. And we're definitely protected from that coercion of being part of a church but now we're seeing the overt hostility. So we'll talk about that when we come back. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to Just the Truth. We're continuing the conversation about freedom and liberty that's God-given and cannot be compelled by government to participate in anything against your sincerely held religious beliefs. But on the flip side, we also don't want our government to be hostile toward religion. So uh, Paul Jonah and Chuck LaMondry, who are my co-counsel at the Thomas More Society, uh, we're really grateful for all of the, uh, the work that we're able to do because of the Thomas More Society. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But um, Paul, I want to ask you about... Um, just briefly kind of the overview of where we're at now. Um, a lot of people have heard about the church cases that are going on, and I think this is the government being very hostile toward religion. Yeah, so uh, essentially, do you want just a recap of where we're at with the church cases? Sure. Okay, so where we're at with those cases is that finally, after six rebukes from the Supreme Court, uh, the state of California finally got the message and abandoned all capacity restrictions on churches and um, the Congregational Singing Band as well. And that took a lot of effort on, on, on the part of our law firm and many others. But we filed a case uh, in, in San Diego on behalf of South Bay United Pentecostal Church back in May um, that of, of 2020. And that case made it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which resulted in an unfortunate five to four decision where Justice Roberts uh, sided with the liberal wing back then and upheld the restrictions on churches uh, and, and we continued fighting that case. We filed other cases, and eventually there was a favorable ruling out of the Supreme Court in November of 2020 uh, when, the, when the makeup of the court changed, when Justice Barrett joined the court, and that was the Brooklyn Diocese case, which basically applied the correct constitutional standard in this context, which is strict scrutiny, struck down the restrictions in New York, and that led to some, some favorable wins in California. We had a case on behalf of a, a priest, the Burfitt versus Newsom, in that case, we got an injunction against the state against the restrictions in December. Then the South Bay case, 
went back to the U.S. Supreme Court in February of this year and resulted in the Supreme Court completely um, you know, striking the indoor worship ban, finding it unconstitutional. And uh, then there were subsequent decisions that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, su sorry, subsequent cases that went to the U.S. Supreme Court that resulted in um, other Ninth Circuit decisions being vacated and basically defeat after defeat after defeat. Eventually, uh, California got the message and, and abandoned, you know, they finally did what they should have done from the very beginning, which is uh, treat churches at least as good as retail. It really should be treating churches better. Right. Uh, never before in the, in the history of our country would anyone expect that they that the state would decide to close down churches. Um, no matter how serious the pandemic is, if you decide that Costco can stay open, then you can't decide to, to shut down churches. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the, the, yeah, the right to uh, to freely exercise religion is fundamental, and we can't imagine that you know the government would close a grocery store or a Costco or or something like that, even in the midst of trying to figure out uh, you know what to do in terms of the pandemic. And so much of this, Chuck, has just been so completely arbitrary, even from the very beginning, so overtly political, uh, completely indefinite. And also, I find it really ironic that now California has set up this reopening date as June fifth. Some you know completely arbitrary date that just so happens to kind of coincide with some of uh, Newsom's recall politics, and I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but I think it's just one other factor and example of how totally arbitrary all of this has been. And yet, for the public, it's the government has basically said to all of us, well. You're out there, you don't even care about uh, humanity at all if you aren't willing to simply sacrifice all of your freedoms and liberties to go along with our arbitrary edicts that uh, are, are completely overturned the next day based on new quote unquote science. I think it's ridiculous. Right. It is, and we've proven the science does not support uh, what they claim is the threat to people's health. In, in the case of Pastor John MacArthur, which you, Jenner, were. Uh, good enough to allow us to work on that case with you, with this uh, courageous uh, pastor who's continued to have his uh, church open despite you know government edicts to the contrary. He's continued to have his worship services since last July. And to my uh, knowledge and understanding to date, there's not one reported case of anybody who uh, got COVID-19 from attending those services. And he's had something like 9,000 people there every uh, Sunday for services. So you multiply that out by the number of services since July. We're talking about, you know, tens of thousands of people, uh, probably hundreds of thousands, I guess, would be by now. Uh, and there's never been any hard data to show that if people who attend church were following the same restrictions as people that are supposed to follow at Costco or, or grocery stores or anywhere else, by wearing masks if necessary or social distancing, but six feet or whatever. There's certainly no more risk in being at church than walking back and forth uh, past other people in, in a grocery store or a big box store or anywhere else. Or a BLM else. So, riot, for example. <laughs> exactly, they did not yeah, enforce it at all for, for the rioters. And you know, as you know, hundreds of thousands of people were in the streets with no social distancing and often no, no masks. So they did not enforce restrictions uniformly and uh, despite our multiple efforts to try to get them to produce any real hardcore data uh, suggesting uh, churches were somehow, you know, big threats uh, that didn't exist elsewhere, uh, no such data did exist. And when the studies actually did start coming out that were specific to, to churches, like the real clear science report,
report that came out that had uh, something like uh, 7,000 uh, churches and, and uh, I think 10 million people uh, over okay. a certain period that they looked at, there was not uh, one case of uh, reported uh, transmission. There were a few cases where it turned out people uh, went to church and had COVID and didn't know it, but they no instance where they actually spread it to anyone else. And that's, again, uh, it was, I think it was, a, they said a million Catholic masses mm. at 7,000 different churches over that period of time. So and it was pretty expensive. Yeah, and, and this is something where, you know, even for people who maybe they didn't care about going to church, they hadn't gone to church uh, in their lifetime maybe before now, uh, for the government to treat that type of fundamental liberty with such callousness and so uh, with such arbitrary restrictions, I hope that people can at least appreciate that if the government is willing to do that for such a fundamentally protected right as the free exercise of religion, what else? Are they willing to come in and say, hey, based on this pretext, no, no science and data whatsoever, just our best guess uh, as it happens today. What else are they going to take away and try to restrict and try to coerce and compel you uh, to do or stop doing? And um, this really, really quick, uh, Chuck, we only have about uh, 30 seconds left, but I want to just get kind of your take on vaccine passports. And there's not a lot of law around this, but a lot of people have misinterpreted the Jacobson case. No, Alan Dershowitz got it wrong. He's a good friend, but the government can't just force uh, a needle into your arm. Uh, they can have a small fine. But um, in terms of vaccine passports, where do you see the law going? I mean, I'll be surprised if there's going to be judicial decisions that say uh, people actually have to be vaccinated. I, I don't see that. Uh, as you indicated, even in the Jacobson case, which was the turn of the last century, which was very serious uh, epidemic at, at the time, it was a, a $10 fine if they did not uh, have the vaccine. So I don't see people being forced to do it. I think the parameters are going to be, can they restrict people in participating in certain activities? I, I would say that's a highly questionable uh, legality. It's like you can't, you know, ride on public transport or an airplane or something like that, or you can't send your kids to a particular school. There's going to be real fights about that. Even now, uh, certain employers, they, they are not mandated in, in some cases, but they're putting pressure on people. But right. since the current vaccines are not FDA approved, uh, I just spoke to an employment lawyer That's recently. That's a good point. You really can't mandate it right. uh, because they're, not, they're, they're still considered experimental, even though And, a, and we got to leave it there. I got to take a break real quick, but we'll come back and finish that thought right here on Just the Truth. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. 
there's always so much more to say about the U.S. Constitution, and that's why you need to tune in every night, uh, weekdays, Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern, right here on Real America's Voice for Just the Truth, where we do these deep dives into these really substantial topics to make you more equipped to defend and protect your liberty against an overreaching government. And if you are considering joining government and running for office to make sure that you understand your oath of office and your obligation to protect the truth. And so I'm so grateful uh, to have Chuck and Paul with me for this conversation. And uh, before we move on to the Thomas More Society, why um, it's so incredibly important if you want to get involved, you can get involved with the Thomas More Society. Chuck, really quickly, um, I know a lot of people are very concerned about vaccine passports and just complete your thought on that and what uh, some potential issues uh, you were talking about employers and uh, some of the legal issues there. Just my understanding, uh, talking to people who, who spend more time actually doing that kind of work, is that uh, it's going to be difficult for employers to force people to get the vaccine since they are not uh, FDA approved at this time and they didn't go through all the rigorous trials that you would ordinarily expect. I think a new one's supposed to come out very soon by Novavax, which is more of a traditional vaccine. That may change the analysis somewhat if it gets FDA approval. But until they do, I think it's going to be difficult to force people to be able to take it. And even then, uh, because of people's bodily integrity, I think there's going to be some real good arguments. But uh, how those are going to play out and whether they can try to restrict people if they don't have them, I think it's crazy. They're talking about having to make kids get them to attend school mm -hmm. since they can't really get COVID-19 or, or they can't uh, spread it either. Uh, there's no point in subjecting them to it. And from what I'm hearing, the science is, you know, if you're a woman that might be pregnant or are pregnant or breastfeeding, it's probably not a good idea uh, to get the vaccine. So uh, that's about what I know at this time. I know there's a lot of uh, diverse uh, thoughts on it. We're going to have to see how it, it plays mm -hmm. out, but I'll be surprised if the law is going to allow them to force people to get the vaccine. The question is whether they'll be able to restrict people's uh, rights to be present in groups uh, without right. it. I think it should not be able to, but I think that's going to be the battleground. Yeah, and that's why it's so important to have a great lawyers like the both of you who are willing to stand up and research these arguments, present the best case to protect and preserve liberty um, across the board and across a lot of different areas. And that's why, uh, Paul, I want to talk uh, just for the last few minutes we have here about the Thomas More Society and why having um, a nonprofit firm that's dedicated to preserving and protecting uh, family, faith, and freedom issues is so important for people to understand. You know, maybe you're really excited, you're sitting at home watching this and you know, you're excited to participate and you're not a lawyer. Well, you can still get involved because there are nonprofits like TMS that have lawyers like us who are willing to do the work. I've been so blessed uh, to have as my friends and co-counsel, uh, Chuck and Paul, you both are just phenomenal lawyers and I respect uh, both of you so highly. And so, uh, Paul, talk a little bit about the Thomas More Society and how people can get involved. Sure. So first of all, Jenna, thank you for all of your great work and for having us on the show today. Um, you know, my I got pleasure. involved with Thank you. I got involved working with Chuck because I started seeing um, the, you know, the collapse of so many good, uh, strong values in our in our country, and so many, um, you know, unfortunate. The, the the other side, the left, was very organized, militant, and um, I noticed that that on our side, a lot of people, um, you know, they just weren't, they didn't have uh, the strategy that the left had. So I I decided I left big firms. I decided to get involved with, with Chuck. I heard about him and, and his amazing work that he was doing with the Mount Soledad Cross case. So I would say uh, that, and the Thomas More Society has lawyers like like us all across the country. Um, and uh, you know, I'd say that if you're worried about what's happening in our society, if you're, if you're unhappy with the way 
um, you know, the, the, the trends and there's there's lots of reasons to be concerned. And I think uh, a, a concrete way to get involved if you're not a lawyer is to support organizations like the Thomas More Society. I mean, uh, there's a there's a quote that's always resonated with me, which is all that's necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So everyone has their role to play for Chuck and I and for other lawyers. It, it's and for you, Jenna, it is um, actually getting involved in the litigation and fighting these these culture saving fights. Um, but for other people, it could be just supporting organizations like the Thomas More Society, getting involved in local politics, like you said. But the work they're doing is so critically important. I mean, think about just these these cases we've been talking about today with the restrictions on the free exercise of religion. We're talking about 40 million people in California who are deprived of the right to go inside church. It's not a small deal. And we and, you know, in the case of the Mount Soledad Cross, there's a whole bunch of other cases we've been involved in with our little effect in, in the in the Southern California region. But um, the Thomas More side, like I said, has lawyers all across the country fighting these fights um, and and really uh, brilliant, talented lawyers, um, you know, and so it's, it's a it's a worthy cause. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Chuck, just um, in our last about 30 seconds here, uh, why is Thomas More Society so special to you and what, what would you tell people who want to get involved? Well, Thomas More, Peter saying of lawyers and, and judges, and he himself made the ultimate sacrifice, even though it was uh, one of the highest and um, most powerful people in, in the land of the legal position. He gave up his life for his uh, principles. And we are fighting the same fight uh, for our uh, principles. And Thomas More Society, is, as Paul mentioned, brings together a very uh, talented pool of lawyers who are engaged in the fight where it's needed most in the courts, at least Democratic branch of government, but has had an outsized uh, source of power and influence. So a lot of these culture-changing events came from judicial decisions, not from our elected uh, officials are not from the votes of the people. So that's why we need to be there uh, mm -hmm. fighting. Thomas More Society gives us an ability to do that. And any support your listeners are able to provide to the Thomas More Society so that we can continue the fight would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, that's so well said. And I think a lot of people um, you know, readily understand why it's so important to donate to various campaigns. They want to go down and lobby. But uh, to make sure that the legislative branch continues to stay in check, and especially the executive, uh, we need to make sure that we have good lawyers on the front lines uh, like those with the Thomas More Society. And that's a great way to get involved to make sure that the judicial branch also has great litigators that are going in uh, to court and making sure that we're making these arguments to preserve and protect freedom and Liberty. That's it for this episode of Just the Truth. I'm Jenna Ellis, and we are sponsored by the Thomas More Society, which is a not-for-profit national public interest law firm dedicated to restoring respect in law for life, family, and religious liberty. You can find out more about the Thomas More Society and the incredible work that we do there at thomasmoresociety.org. And I will be back tomorrow and every Monday through Friday here on Just the Truth.